So, Mark. Yes? If you today went to visit the Philadelphia Museum of Art... Which I would recommend. I haven't been. Good museum. Well, it's moved around a couple of times and has actually left the museum grounds for a little bit in the 2000s. But today, if you visit, there's a nice patch of grass out front of the museum where you could find a statue of the legend Rocky Balboa raising his fists in victory. And it is not Sylvester Stallone. It is a statue of Rocky Balboa, specifically. That's right. I mean, it was built as a prop for, I believe, Rocky III, which is part of the controversy around, like, why it's moved around a bunch, because at one point, the city of Philadelphia wanted it outside a sports complex that they were building, Mm -hmm. and so the city argued that it wasn't art, it was a movie prop, and therefore it didn't belong at the art museum. The line is always absurd. So it's now back at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and inspired by that, I was wondering... What movie character should have a real-life statue at the site of their fictional exploits? So, maybe less a character, but I really think we should consider putting giant kaiju statues in the middle of the Pacific or all the way along the Pacific Rim. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Number one, I like this. (laughs) Number two, you probably don't remember this, but like two years ago on this podcast... You pitched a skyscraper-style movie about a city that is, like, floating in the Pacific Ocean. I remember. Where half of it is above water and half of it is submarine. Still sounds fun to me. So I just like the idea that, faced with an idea to construct something, you constantly go back to, we should build something in the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) We should just make more things float in water. It is cool. Uh, Also, a city that can capsize great for a disaster movie yeah it's the called... big tilt <laughs> the big tilt <laughs> so back to mortal engines it all comes back to mortal engines yeah no i mean you're inventing the poseidon adventure yeah but imagine if it's a city i am taking the entire concept of mortal engines which is just like what if cars were cities but moving it onto boats but mark the thing is when you build something that's as big as a city you also get all of the problems that come with a city I also do want to give a shout out to my new friend who I met earlier this month and in the middle of the city of Seattle, a statue of a cute little girl named Megan. I want to be very clear, Megan is also on my list. (laughs) Just Megan specifically in the Lamborghini. That's my top choice. I I would love a statue of Megan. I'd love a Megan of my own. I would love a Megan of my own. Ideally, less murder. We don't stand by murder. Caleb, are, have you seen Megan yet? Do you you know, I haven't Megan? seen Megan. I've just seen like the clips. Caleb. Uh, unfortunately, I, I'm sorry, sorry to let y'all down. Though on the kaiju note, isn't there like a um, a, a, a big statue of Godzilla? Because I want to say I was watching the Tokyo Olympics last year, like during like the marathon or something, uh, or maybe it was like the triathlon, and they would run around and there was a, a part of the course where there was just a giant Godzilla statue uh, just stand, like hover, like, overlording over over the runners during the olympics during the tokyo olympics uh, and so my mind immediately I mean, that went right. there when you mentioned kaiju but no unfortunately i haven't seen megan there is a tokyo godzilla statue yes it looks pretty great actually so we have rocky and godzilla are the two current real life examples who else would we need megan <laughs> specifically i mean an icon for sure caleb i will say you know for the listeners we are recording this like five days after Megan was released in theaters, after Megan was released into the world. And Mark, you saw a lot of Megan stuff on TikTok. I Indeed. Believe. Yeah. I saw like 
two Megan TV spots, like 30 second TV spots. And that's it. I saw no marketing for this movie. I never, I go to the movies all the time. I never saw the trailer for Megan. So I knew very little. I went in, I had a blast. What a good movie. They targeted their advertising in a specific way. Yeah. I'm bringing all this up because by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be like March. Megan is probably on Peacock. Uh, there is also rumors that a unrated version exists what? that is gorier. Yes, the director has said that there are more kills that didn't make the final cut because they wanted a PG-13 horror, which I appreciate. I appreciate too, and I would love for both versions to exist. Yeah. I need to go see this movie ASAP. I've been trying to get more into uh, horror, as we previously discussed last time I, I was on. It's barely horror. Yeah, Megan is just <laughs> fun. Like... Again, it's PG-13. Almost all the violence is off-screen. Oh, see, easy easy baby step for me then. Yeah, it's like creepy, but it's like immediately obvious that it's creepy and also pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, on purpose. The humor is not accidental. Yeah, the movie opens with a pretty great joke. I- I'm looking forward to it. I think the last, last sort of like kind of movie in that vein was Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. That was the last kind of movie that sounds like it, it, it might have a similar... Um, tone to it. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. So uh, yeah, that's a pretty ringing endorsement for Megan. I liked Megan a lot more than Body Body Bodies. Oh, wow. I think it's a blast. I was howling in the theater. Well, I'm adding it to my calendar now. People should watch Megan. Uh, we stand an icon. <laughs> I plan to watch Megan at least three more times this year. I texted you, Mark, I think, like, this time last year, I was watching the 355 in theaters, and I just feel like I'm off to a much better start. Uh, I don't know, 2023 is starting on a good note. So I also had Megan on my list. She is fresh on my mind and near in my heart. Um, Some other people that I thought uh, could be statues, as I'm sure both of you know, in Congress, there is a room called Statuary Hall, where every state gets to pick two people to have statues of. I did not know this. Yeah, so every state just gets to choose two people and be like, these are our two people representing our state in Statuary Hall. And so many of them are Confederate generals. Right, so there has been some movement in the last couple of years to weed down the number of Confederate generals. Uh, I did not bother to look up who represents the state of Montana, but if they're looking for an upgrade, as many states are right now, they could put up a statue of Jefferson Smith, titan of, of filibustering in the Senate, iconic hero of... Frank Capra's film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I think, uh, I think this is an all right idea. He is, at, he is better than many people who have statues in Statuary Hall. Okay, so I will say I did look up Montana, and Jeanette Rankin is one of them. First female member of Congress and lifelong right. pass fest. And then Voted Charles, against World War I. Charles M. Russell, who I don't know who that is. An artist of the American West. Look, I love a painting of Montana as much as the next guy. But I also love Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> I think I'm team Jefferson Smith. I think, you know, you've won me over. I, I, if I could vote, I would vote Jefferson Smith. Right, like there's definitely a statue of somebody in that room who did a filibuster. And we might as well have someone who did like a good filibuster that we have on tape. And that might be because we filmed it for a fictional movie, but nonetheless. I'm just surprised that Montana doesn't have terrible people. Good for Montana. Good for Montana. I'm always surprised at this point. So I had Jefferson Smith, I had Megan, and then I thought of, you know, so much of our statue discourse is about which statues should be up and which statues should come down. And so I thought we could erect a statue that would be fun for me, and then we could immediately have protests to tear it down. I think that outside the Lincoln Center in New York City, we should have a statue of Lydia Tarr. Just to immediately cause controversy. Exactly, right. And I think 
I think she on some level would appreciate it and also be troubled by it. And like the monster hunter fans could come out and try to defend it. I, I, I enjoy all tar conversation and I'd love to spur it with a statue of, you know, my great friend Lydia. I think Megan first. That's fine. Yeah, if we're putting up statues of monsters, Megan first. <laughs> yeah, that's what, yeah. That's a really good show. I still haven't seen Tar, again, but we, I, we, I gotta know, watch Tar. I heard it was so good. We wanted to go uh, see it in theaters, and then, well, we were moving at the time. It was just terrible timing. Tar is still screening at the Is Eastern it really? Cinema. Okay, I, we're, we're going to have to Twice shuttle over and, and, and go check it out, because I hear it's fantastic. It's been on our list, so I have to admit that. But I think you're about, just about to ask who I had on my list. Unfortunately, I cannot remember this character's name. But I was thinking of the crew from the core. They they saved the earth. <laughs> they it had to be done. Wait, Caleb, you're telling me you can't remember the names of the characters in that movie? I, I I'm so sorry. I know. I just uh I know they're iconic. Bruce Greenwood played a Terranaut in that movie. <laughs> I, I I this is not one I would have predicted coming up. Caleb, did you see Jamel Bowie on New Year's Eve tweeting about watching the core? Uh, I think I may have seen one or two tweets about it, but I don't remember it much. I think that must be why it's top of my mind. Who watches the core? <laughs> we did, and, and so did Jamel Bowie. So here's the thing. is Confirmed listener. Exactly. <laughs> the best listener we probably have. It was between that or, or the astronauts from Armageddon. Would their, where would their statue be? Would it be on the asteroid? That was the, that was the hard thing. I would imagine I'd have to, we'd have to throw the statue like at... You know, one of like NASA's home bases. Maybe I don't. Maybe you know, like maybe in Houston, you'd kind of have to like put it put it there. Uh, th- that's what I was thinking. I'm thinking about the core because they go into the core in the Marianas Trench. So, like Mark, you are proposing a floating statue. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Of the crew that that solved the Destiny Crisis. Yes, one hundred percent. That's exactly because because then you know all those like photos of like statues. It's like art pieces in the water. They have algae on it. You'd get all sorts of wonderful shots of that, assuming you could make it down to the Marianas Trench, which uh, would be very difficult. It's also too dark to see. But that's part of the novelty, I think. I do like the idea that in the Little Mermaid remake that's coming out this year, instead of a statue of like whatever pretty boy is playing Eric, she had a statue of like (laughs) core. The whole cast of the core. It's like (laughs) Stanley Tucci and Bruce Greenwood. Aaron Eckert. Hilary Swank. Yeah. Just all of them. That's the, it has to be the whole team. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just pick one. That, that To me, it was all about, important to, to mention team efforts, you know, Armageddon, the core, just really, like, you know, talk about, like, the nature of humanity. So I, I uh, that that's where my mind immediately went. They saved Remember Earth. the scene where all the birds die? Yeah, that ruled. It was hilarious. <laughs> Caleb, that was a very film. sweet sentiment, and I chose Lydia Tarr, so I think we approached this from opposite perspectives. <laughs> And I just went straight to the coolest thing I could think of. Can't argue with that. Yeah, yours might win. I think, you know, as far as what, what I think Mark's Mark's suggestions might probably be the, the best ones. Imagine if they're unmoored and they just follow the currents of the ocean. So, like, once every few years, if you live on the coast, you get the chance to see in the distance a giant monster and or robot depending on who we want to celebrate come floating towards you i'm the conversation I, I don't is open know that for that's either how side work i think if you just float something on it it would move along the current won't they all just wind up in the garbage patch probably see that's just making me think about you know how 
those Garfield phones are washing up in like France for like years. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if y'all ever heard about that story, but like there's one beach in France where like Garfield phones just kept washing up, washing up. They finally found out it was like a container that had like, you know, broken and kind of dislodged somewhere. But uh, uh, I imagine the kaiju would just kind of find one beach and all just kind of end up there. Not if we get our most brilliant scientific minds on ensuring that they travel well. But most of them died in the core. <laughs> <laughs> so many people died in that core, but I don't think any of them got left behind. I mean, Stanley Tucci kind of got left behind to die because someone oh, had wait, to. wait, they did have to dislodge the centipede. Yeah. Centipedes make for great robot shapes. That is what I'm realizing after thinking about the core in Mortal Engines. Yeah. Speaking of centipedes, should we talk about Rocky? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. I feel like there are some centipedes in his apartment, probably. I mean, probably. <laughs> Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to the least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are joined by our great friend Caleb to talk about the romance of the 1976 Best Picture winner, Rocky. Hey, everybody. Uh, Thanks uh, again for having me on. Always a pleasure to be here and definitely excited to talk about Rocky. Yeah, Caleb, I think you are the only one of the three of us who had seen Rocky before. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's right. Mark, you hadn't seen it? I think I've seen Rocky 2 or 3. I've seen a later Rocky. There's a lot of Rocky movies. But I've not seen this one. I do know I haven't seen this one. My first Rocky movie was Creed 2. And then I saw Creed, and now I've seen Rocky. Wow. See, okay. So I've seen... uh, I'm a big fan of boxing movies. I can't say I've seen all of them. I haven't even seen all of the Rocky movies. I've really seen Rocky. I've seen Creed, Creed 2. I've... Pretty sure I've seen Rocky Balboa and Rocky Four, but like I haven't, I can't say I've seen really all of them. But for my money, Creed is probably the best of the uh, of the series. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that movie. But Rocky also has a has a special place in my heart as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is Rocky Four the one where Paulie has a robot? Oh Lord, I I want to say yes. It might you know that might be. I want to. I don't remember. It might be Rocky Three, just because I, I know Paulie has a robot in one of them. Yeah, because I know by a certain point they've lost all their money because they hired a bad accountant. Um, uh, but I can't remember which one that was at this moment. The, like, it's funny how much there is for a while. And again, I've only seen Creed, Creed Two, and Rocky. Like a sense of like not quite being sure what a Rocky movie is, where. Like, this movie is, is very much a sports movie, which is part of why I thought of you, Caleb, because we had you on to talk about the great sports movie, A Knight's Tale, and the interesting sports movie, She's the Man. And, like, this is very much a sports movie, but I read a lot of interviews with Sylvester Stallone, both from the time and since then, which was a lot of fun. I kept texting you guys pictures from interviews. What an interesting man. Right? It was one of the most fun times I've had researching for an episode. But I read one interview where Stallone said that this is like in 1976. He's like, yeah, Rocky's a hit. I got plans for the trilogy. Rocky 2. Rocky goes to night school, enters politics. By the end of the movie, he's elected mayor of Philadelphia. Rocky 3. He's framed 
for corruption by people who don't like that he won't be corrupt with them, which is basically what happens in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And so then he is forced out of politics and has to go back into the ring when he's older. He's like 40. I'm like, this is a plan for a very different series than the one that we I don't think this is how it turned out, based on my understanding. You know, it would have been interesting if those movies had been made that way. That is fascinating. And I kind of see that thought process in this movie because so much of this movie feels more like character study than what we've come to know as like your traditional sports film formula, which funnily enough, Rocky helped to like establish, especially with like the training montage, it being one of like the first and most famous, maybe not the first, but like definitely like it's one of the earliest people can point to, I think. So it's like, I, it's funny how much I can see that and how it really, this movie i think think of it thinks of itself more as a character study in a lot of ways mm-hmm. yes, you know absolutely. than than it does as a boxing movie maybe it's because i don't like boxing and i watched it for this podcast but to me this was a love story more than anything it absolutely is well you think about the primary moment and maybe you know we'll end up getting to it but like you know, spoiler alert, but I guess if anyone's who's seen this, is that at the end, the shot isn't ab- about the decision of the match, right? That's happening all in the background. You can barely hear it. Yeah. Right. You know, and I think that's such a brilliant choice. I think if anyone knows any quote from this movie, it is Adrian. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's Caleb, when I texted you to come on to say, do you want to come talk about Rocky? Your response was just, yo, Adrian, exclamation point. <laughs> But, you know, Caleb, what you're talking about, about the way the movie ends, I think this is another interesting thing that I found in reading about it. Originally, there's just, like, a clear, like, okay, Rocky loses, and then the movie ended on Rocky and Adrian walking into the locker room together. And it changed to the one that we got of, like, Adrian fighting her way through the crowd to, like, get to Rocky and ending with the two of them there just outside the action. Just because... They really, really liked the score that Bill Conti wrote, and they were like, this music rules, but it does not fit the ending that we fit. So they shot a new ending to match the music. That's cool. I like this ending. It's great. But at that point, they had like run out of their shoestring budget, so they had to borrow camera equipment from New York, New York, which was shooting like somewhere else on the lot. And so they were like borrowing their cameras. Stallone and the producers are like figuring out how to put up money to shoot like two more days to do that. It's funny you mentioned New York, New York, because I was reading up and maybe you saw this too, that, you know, the the producers weren't exactly sold on Rocky, especially with Stallone (laughs) being in the lead. And he was like, no, y'all like, I think people wanted the movie, but they didn't want him to be in the lead because he was kind of an unknown. But so they weren't really sold. So they were like, you know what? We'll approve it, but we'll have a small budget. And New York, New York, it'll cover it. Like, you know, if, if this bombs, New York, New York will kind of cover any losses we make. And it turned out that Rocky was such a success that it covered for the losses that New York, New York incurred by not being a big hit. Well, yeah, because New York, New York, which we've covered on this show, was extremely expensive and not a hit, which, you know, that's a movie that I have some affection for, but it is hard to watch that movie and imagine it being a hit. <laughs> I mean, and it's so funny because apparently there are things where it's influenced the script. So, like, some things where, like, his robe was too big. That was just something that happened because the robe... The robe didn't fit. The robe didn't fit, and so he wrote it into the scene. Same thing for the um, the the big poster kind of hanging in the arena. The colors on the boxers were wrong on the poster because they ended up changing the boxers last minute. And so he wrote that in into the scene, like, "Hey, the boxers, the 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 uh, boxing shorts are wrong." Yeah, there's there's some dispute about that particular anecdote. Like the director John Avildsen says, like, 
yeah, we realized that was wrong, and <laughs> so then we couldn't do anything about it. Stallone says he made a last-minute decision to change the shorts. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. so there's some difference in memory there. My favorite example of them adjusting the movie based on the budget is that the ice rink scene was supposed to happen like in the middle of the day, but then they couldn't afford to pay extras. So they rode around it to have Rocky like bribing his way into 10 minutes of ice time, which is a much better scene. Right. Honestly, it's There's it's something an charming solution. about his dedication there. Completely agree. Completely agree. It, it, it's, it's elegant. It actually shows him differently. It, it shows us a bit about him and about Adrian that he's, you know, he's going to find a way to get it done. You know what I mean? Even if it's, you know, Thanksgiving, even if he's kind of making the guy stay late, he's going to do something nice for, for Adrian in the moment. If we circle back to this idea we were talking about of the movie being, as much as it is a sports movie and kind of sets the template for sports movies going forward, it is very much like a character study. When you think about the degree to which the story is not really anchored in Rocky's sports career or even sports desires, so much as it is in like Rocky's self-actualization, where at the start of the movie, he is like basically pretty content Mm -hmm. in frankly a kind of pathetic life. Yeah, he's not really striving until he has a, like, a chance put in front of him. Right, he's not a guy who's like, oh, you know, like, I could have been great if I had a shot. He's just like, this is the way my life worked out, and, you know, I got my friends, I got my neighborhood, like, you know, I got right. people I have to kneecap on behalf of a loan shark. But he, like, doesn't even do it because he feels bad for them. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, he is, like, pretty pathetic and, like, even not good at the kind of pathetic things that he's doing. And as you said, like, the opportunity is just thrown in front of him because he has a good ring name, the Italian Stallion, and because Carl Weathers is like, who discovered America? An Italian. How do you do your American birthday boxing match? You do it with an Italian. Apollo Creed is pretty great. He rocks. He's just a celebrity. Well, it's amazing how much, because I I think they've said, and, and, and Will, you might be able to correct me on this. And by they, I, I think Sly Stallone had um, kind of mentioned that he's kind of like based on Muhammad Ali to a certain extent. Some of that showmanship. A little bit. Uh, you know, I think he's also a little bit based on Frasier as well. There's a little bit of Frasier. Frasier Crane? I didn't get that. <laughs> Just the Harvard education that he mentions in every scene. Well, Joe Frazier actually makes, you know, a cameo in the movie, quick cameo, uh, which I thought it was yeah. pretty cool. But it's, it's interesting because I, I think... You know, one of the scenes for me that kind of starts to bring that into to focus is when Mickey comes along. And it's so interesting because suddenly everybody's wants or needs something from Rocky. And then Rocky's like, my apartment stinks. He has this whole, you know, monologue and this outburst about how terrible By his accounts, apartment is. They shot that in a place that apparently legitimately smelled awful. Really? I believe it. <laughs> yes. It looks like it. It honestly looks like it. And it's almost like one of those things where, like, when you have something in front of you, at least the way it looks in this movie to me, it's like, you know, he's content with what he has because he can't get anything better. And the second he has something come up, you know, come up that might improve his life, suddenly he's like, it, it kind of brings into focus how terrible things can be. And also, I think he also makes it clear, especially in his conversation, you know, some conversations later on, that he also doesn't really believe in himself that he can do this that it's more about figuring out that he can and like pushing himself to do it but he doesn't think that you know he he knows from the beginning he he's gonna lose and so it's such an Mm -hmm. interesting dynamic there that like yeah it starts off with him being like uh 
yeah, I'm cool with the terrible life I have to this kind of growing dissatisfaction with with life as it's turned out. And that's where the movie then, it's not even really about Rocky wanting to be the champ. Like, he doesn't actually really care about, like, being the the champion of the world. Like you're saying, faced with an opportunity to improve his life, he wants to seize on that and improve his life. And he has pretty modest goals even in that, where, like... Pauly is out spotting all these opportunities to make money off of Rocky's newfound celebrity. And Rocky is like, yeah, sure, do whatever you want. Like, get the money for yourself. Like, okay, you get the money, I get the robe. Like, all Rocky really wants is for, like, people to think well of him and for him to be with Adrian. He, like, barely wants people to think well of him. He mostly wants Adrian and to box. I I guess I just am really struck with, like, compared to a lot of other sports movies, Rocky wants to box. He is content to box at the level that he's boxing, where he's a, frankly, like, low-tier city league boxer. Mm-hmm. He is not a guy who's like, ah, oh, if I'd only gotten a chance, I would have been the champ. Yeah, it's a very small movie in a way, which I guess, yeah, I mean, the budget was small, but it's like right. his hopes and dreams are not that big. The end result, like, his life, we're not anticipating major changes. He's not going to go on to be, like, this huge celebrity. He's going to be a news story for a few weeks and then fade away. And I think that's part of what makes this movie so successful, that he is not really this larger-than-life figure. I think, in a way, it makes him sort of relatable, in that we're all kind of schmucks in some way. At least, you know, we're always just kind of... Some guys in our story. And I think it's really relatable to see a guy go through his life and just kind of accept where he's at. And and I think, you know, even to your point about like his goal, even in his big moment, is just to last the full match. You know, it's really just I, I just want to, you know, people to see that I can hang, that I'm tough. And there's sort of a humility in that, that I think, at least for me, I, I you know, and, and I imagine for a lot of audience members, that's that's touching and it's like man i kind of i i respect that that sort of simplicity uh in in just kind of in aspiration in just wanting to have good friends and be a good member of his neighborhood to a certain extent that i i think you're right that part of what 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 that the appeal of, of this movie is you know mark as you said is that it's it's small i think it's it's in a way it's so it's a small community in a way i think it really feels like he's a man of 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 his of his city i think so often like for a lot of movies now, the kind of stakes are almost so big that it's unrelatable. It becomes meaningless. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas now in this movie, the stakes are so small that suddenly it's very important. He wants to last. Like, he wants to go the distance. That is the stakes. Not even to win. You know, it reminds me of some of the conversation around Turning Red last year, where there was a lot of discussion about, like, sort of who's able to relate to that movie. And ultimately, where I came down and where I think a lot of people came down is, like, Actually, like, the more specific, the more particular that it gets, the more relatable it becomes because you feel like you are watching a particular experience and that makes you more able to connect it to your own than when it all just feels really vague. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has to just feel like a person's life in order to feel like your life, even if you're not the person. Shout out to the one little girl in his community that has a real, like, verging on stereotypical Philadelphia accent. Because just, like, out of the blue, there's that one little girl that just talks, like, Pawn Stars from the Kroll show. <laughs> What's it called? Uh, Pawnsylvania. Competing Pawn Stores from Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. She was just out of the blue. Mark, what did you think of Rocky? I enjoyed Rocky. 
as I said, I don't like boxing and I actively looked away during the fighting scenes because I don't enjoy seeing people just punch each other in the face and then they get bloody and then some guy's eyelid had to be like cut off. No. That was crazy. No, thank you. No, thank you. So I I can get behind wrestling because wrestling feels less violent in a way. Well, it's performance. It. I mean, yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's mostly just theater. But boxing, you literally just like trying to commit murder. That's what it feels like. And I can't get behind it. I don't know. I don't think boxing is the most moral sport. I think boxing is verging on an immoral activity. And so that is my biggest barrier to becoming a Rocky fan. Yeah, it's the thing of like, I feel like I can watch boxing in a movie because I know it's not real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I get immersed in it. I'm like reacting to the fight. And I'm invested in the fight, but there's enough of that disconnect happening in my brain that I'm like, it's okay. You know, when Rocky talked about how he started fighting when he was 15 years old, and I'm like, that is the age of my students who should not be punching each other to death. And so, yeah, it is like, it is crazy. And of course, we're, we're recording this uh, not just after the release of Megan, but also after the, uh, the really horrifying uh, Bengals-Bills football game two weeks ago. So I've been thinking a lot about like violence in sports and about the damage that we inflict on people for our entertainment and Rocky uh, boxing is intense stuff. We're just not as far from the gladiator arena as we like to imagine ourselves. I mean, that's the thing I think to a certain extent too. Yeah. I, I agree that like a lot of sports, not, I won't say all, you know, but a, there are a lot of sports, particularly combat sports where there are the kind of thought process you have to do, of, of, you know, and the, in some ways, mental gymnastics, around the morality of, of what's involved, the safety of the people doing it. it. It's it's kind of ubiquitous with with a lot of sports. I mean, I, I admit I watch, I've watched some MMA. I don't watch a lot. I think recently I've, I've been watching more like grappling just because that it feels less, you know, head trauma. But I do think like for me, at least, you know, when it comes to movies, I think what I generally love about boxing movies is it's a lot like tennis. One thing, reason I, I when I watch tennis, I really enjoy it is because it's just those two characters. And so it really leaves itself open to really great narrative, really great storytelling, and that you really have a protagonist and an antagonist. Oh, boxing is maybe the best sport for movies. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. I, I'm, I really love anime. There's one anime called Hajime no Ippo. It's all about boxing. And, and it, it really, you know, does a great job of telling all these stories. And it, it does a good job of making even the quote-unquote antagonist of, you know, of the pro, uh, protagonist. I guess it would, he, they would still be the antagonist. Really uh, uh, sympathetic. You see the stories they go through as well. And I think you're right. Like, you know, it's why baseball, ha- you know, tends to have some good movies too because there are moments to talk and chat and it's usually easy to follow. But boxing, I, I completely agree with that in a way just as the simplicity of two people just punching each other in the middle of a ring uh does lend itself to some some good storyteller you know one of the things that i like about the portrayal of boxing in rocky is sort of the way it's engaging with the class elements of the sport where i love at the beginning of the movie after rocky's first fight when you see the guys in the gym and they're getting paid and the promoter or manager or whoever it is, is like walking through like, okay, this is the purse. And now here's the cut that you're getting, like walking Mm -hmm. through, they're not boxing for that much money to begin with. And the fraction that they get is even smaller. And then the movie also really highlights this disparity. There's the sequence where Rocky is on TV demonstrating, punching the meat. And that is being shown in the background of Apollo Creed 
organizing sponsorship deals around the fight. And just the the difference in the status that these characters mm-hmm. have is laid out just so cleanly in that shot. It's really effective storytelling. I mean, the sports system as it's, as it's set up is mostly like selling itself as sacrifice your body for a chance to achieve class mobility. Oh, absolutely. And Carl Weathers himself had been briefly a football player. He played for Oakland for a year and a half, and then he played in British Columbia for like three years. So, Caleb, you brought up Ali as an inspiration for Apollo Creed. And there is a little bit of that. I think it's worth digging into all the different boxing inspirations for this movie. So, obviously, Muhammad Ali is the most famous boxer in America and plays some roles. And certainly after the success of Rocky at that year's Oscars, like, appeared on stage with Sylvester Stallone, and they did some, like, fake boxing. But a much closer inspiration for Apollo Creed was a boxer named Ken Norton, who had fought Ali three times, won one of those by a split decision. He was never knocked out, so pretty good record when you're up against the best. And Ken Norton was actually cast in the movie as Apollo Creed, but ultimately had to drop out because he was offered a spot on, like, an ABC competition show that would pay him more money. Fair enough. Yeah. Because, again, Rocky is like a shoestring production, which we'll talk about in a little bit some more. He then gets replaced by Carl Weathers. And Carl Weathers, just as a side note, uh, Carl Weathers gave this great interview around the time Creed came out, where he said, at his audition, they told him, okay, you're going to read with the screenwriter, who, of course, is Sylvester Stallone. And the script read, like, didn't go that well. And the way Carl Weathers tells it, he's like, yeah, and after it was done, like, it wasn't great. Everyone could tell it wasn't great. And so I was just frustrated, and I was like, well, if you'd gotten me a real actor to work with, I probably could have done better. Because he hadn't been told that Stallone was going to star in the movie. Oh, man. So the other big inspirations for this movie, um, Caleb, you mentioned Joe Frazier, who has a cameo in this. Frazier, most notably, basically had Rocky's training regimen, like punching meat and running up the stairs at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Those are things that Joe Frazier did to train. Really? I actually didn't know that. Yeah. But the biggest inspiration, sort of the, the kickoff point for Rocky coming into existence is in 1975, Sylvester Stallone watches a boxing match between Muhammad Ali and this, like, nobody named Chuck Wepner. And the match was, I think, like, in Cleveland. Stallone watching it from a movie theater. But Wepner, like, shocks the world by lasting 15 rounds with Muhammad Ali. He finally goes down with 19 seconds to go in the 15th round. So he came 19 seconds from just lasting an entire fight with Muhammad Ali. During that fight... He became the third man to ever knock Muhammad Ali down. Wow. And so Stallone then, he claims that he is inspired to write based on this fight. He's very insistent to this day that the movie is not based on Chuck Webner, that he just sees this incredible fight and he's like, that's a movie. And his mother, who dabbled in astrology, had told him like, ah, Syl- Sylvester, your, your success will come from writing. So he's like, all right, I'll write a movie bangs out the screenplay in three and a half days, and then we're off to the races. Chuck Webner did audition for Rocky II. He admits that the audition went really badly, and he was always, for a long time, like, pretty positive about Rocky. He was like, eh, it's a good movie. Like, it's cool that it's inspired by me. He had met Stallone a bunch of times. It's not until the 2000s that he's like, Stallone has always been nice to me, but clearly does not intend to give me any money. And so at that point, he sues Sylvester Stallone for stealing his life story. The case was settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. I feel like that's the pretty obvious story there, honestly. Yeah. As far as the the story of the screenplay that Stallone wrote in three and a half days, that's not the final version of the movie, obviously. You know, most notably, 
in the original script, Rocky throws the fight because he realizes that he doesn't want to be a professional boxer, which certainly is not what happens in the final movie. No, that's quite a change. Yeah. I can't imagine that that would have been as popular. No, not at all. So Stallone writes this screenplay. At this point, he has the number that always gets thrown around is he has $106 in the bank. His wife is pregnant. And so like they are on the ropes. And Sylvester Stallone, like his career has not taken off. He was like been in minor roles in a couple of flops, like full on background roles in bigger movies like MASH. And his biggest role was in, like, a softcore porn movie called The Party at Kitty and Studs. What? Caleb, did you not know that? I did not know that. I'm so sorry. I, uh, not to derail you, that is news to me. I, look, I've never gone looking for it, but if you watch it, tell me about it. <laughs> uh, I'll let you know, but I, I feel like the chances are low. So Stallone's career had not exactly taken off, but the one thing he had going for him is one of the flops that he was in was a movie called The Lords of Flatbush. And one of his co-stars in it was a fellow named Henry Winkler. And in between filming Lords of Flatbush and Sylvester Stallone writing the script for Rocky, Henry Winkler became the Fonz. Wow, okay. (laughs) So Winkler takes the script to ABC. And ABC says, yeah, we like this script. We'd love to make a TV movie of it. Winkler says, all right. Basically, playing the role of a producer sells the screenplay to ABC. Then... ABC is like, cool, you know, we're going to put this in production. We'll hire some new writers to do a polish on it. Winkler reports that back to Stallone. Stallone is like, do not let someone else write this. I wrote this. This is my thing. Do whatever it takes to not get other writers. And so Winkler ultimately is like, okay, I'm going to give you the money back. And you're going to give us the screenplay back. And ABC is like, no, we're not going to do this. And Henry Winkler is like, I am the star of Happy Days. You need to keep me happy or else you don't have a show anymore. (laughs) So Henry Winkler threatens ABC into not making Rocky. At that point, Stallone gets the screenplay back. He's able to sell it to United Artists. And United Artists is like, okay, good movie. Like, we're happy. You know, we're working on developing some changes to the screenplay. That's fine. Stallone, you can keep writing those, you know, script rewrites. But they wanted, like, a big 70s star in it. The names that always show up are Ryan O'Neill, Burt Reynolds, and James Caan. Like, Ryan O'Neill, crazy. I do kind of like the idea of James Caan in this movie. It is hard to picture the movie without Stallone, though. Yeah. But this is like Godfather-era James Caan. Yeah. Could be interesting. A different movie. Mm -hmm. A very different movie. Mm -hmm. And so Stallone then refused to allow the movie to be made unless he starred in it. He, like, turned down $300,000. Which, again, he has $106 in the bank. I don't think his wife was probably too happy about that. I kind of love the move. It's kind of like Lin-Manuel Miranda casting himself as Hamilton. It's like, look, I may not be the best actor, but I made the thing and I identify with it. So I'm going to be in it. He also, though, pitched himself to United Artists as the cheap option because Erwin Winkler's contract as a producer at UA let him greenlight movies if they were below a certain budget level. So Stallone is like, look, you got a star. You're going to have to work with the studio. You cast me. You can do whatever you want. That's pretty, honestly, that's pretty good sales pitch. Yeah. I would buy it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, so that's how uh, Stallone got his position. They got John Avildsen to direct it, and the movie's off to the races. Like we said, you know, it's incredibly cheap production. They make it for, like, around a million dollars. The most notable thing production-wise is that it's the third movie ever to use the Steadicam. Really? Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. They use it during the training montage and some parts of the fight. And at this point, there is, like, 
one steady cam. It's Garrett Brown who invented the steady cam. Like he had a steady cam. He probably had a couple of rigs, but like mm-hmm. he had a steady cam. And if you wanted to use the steady cam, it meant you were hiring Garrett Brown to work <laughs> on your movie. And he would like come and be like, here's my equipment that I know how to use. Like Andy Circus. Exactly. It's like hiring Andy Circus. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that was the first one. I also am just kind of like amazed that like It's not quite the first. There's two The third uh, the third that. one. One of the, one of the one of the first ones, sorry. Yeah, it's Bound for Glory and Marathon Man do it first. I- I'm just still stuck on Henry Winkler being such a big advocate for this movie getting made. It's crazy, right? It- it's one of those like stranger than fiction type things to me. But yeah, I it's it's funny how sometimes it's these small budget movies that you see some I mean, I, I, for obvious reasons, but it's interesting that's where you see some innovations. For instance, like the Steadicam. But it makes sense that it would be, you know, these more athletic, movement-heavy movies. You know, where if you're trying to follow somebody doing something a- a- active, having a steady cam might be useful. Yeah, I also think, like, you see some of this innovation in scrappier movies in part because with fewer resources, they're forced to improvise. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right, they don't have the whole machinery of a studio behind them doing everything the way that it's used to going. Yeah, and then that improvisation can save money or is an improvement and then gets picked up. You think about the Sean Baker movies and like all the crazy iPhone rigs that they did to shoot those. Yeah. So Rocky premiered on November 21st, 1976 in New York City. It then had a rolling release through December of 76. And it was a gigantic hit. It made $117 million in North America, not adjusted for inflation. Oh my god. So again, against its $1 million budget. It's quite a profit there. So it's one of the most successful movies of all time by that metric. Yeah. And it gets 10 Oscar nominations, including uh, winning Best Picture over Bound for Glory, Network, Taxi Driver, and All the President's Men. I saw that in like 2015, they interviewed Academy voters... And the Hollywood Reporter did this. Yeah. The Hollywood Reporter did this, yeah. And it, like, this is one that they sort of said, the majority were like, I would vote for All the President's Men now. And it's funny to look back at the period where All the President's Men is the one that's, like, winning a lot of the critics groups, like New York Film Critics Circle, National Board of Review, National Society of Film Critics, all go for All the President's Men. But the Guild Awards, just one after another, are for Rocky. Like, Rocky wins the WGA Award, it wins the DGA Award. And it wins Best Picture and Best Director and Best Editing. And at the time, like, Stallone and the other champions of the movie are like, yeah, because people want to feel good. Like, (laughs) we've had a a lot of bummer movies recently. You know, the whole 70s, new Hollywood, anti-heroes, movies that we love. But he's like, yeah, like, you know, we went through Watergate. We went through Vietnam. Do you want to give Best Picture to Taxi Driver? Do you want to give it to Rocky? You want to feel good? (laughs) It was an era where I think... A feel-good movie felt revolutionary. Anything's possible. A peanut farmer just got elected president. Oh my god, that quote was hilarious. Yeah, I sent you guys both a quote from an incredible New York Times interview that Stallone did. And the interviewer asked him, Doesn't this kind of naive movie give false hopes to unfortunate people? Which itself is a brutal question. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty bad question. Yeah. Doesn't this kind of naive movie give false hope to unfortunate people? And Stallone, it says, bellowed. What do you mean? A peanut farmer has just become president of the United States. That's the greatest inspiration story of all time. He didn't come from wealth. He made his wealth. He went to his mother with dirt on his overalls and said, I'm going to be president. He's understated. A common man. And that's why he won. I always say, if you lead with your heart, 
lead with your heart, and it will carry you much further than your brain will. And if that ain't a manifesto for Sylvester Stallone, I don't know what is. He's kind of a weird guy. It really encapsulates him, I I really think. Uh, That is, I'm so glad you stumbled upon that quote, because everything, like, you you say that, and then everything about Sly Stallone makes sense. I will say, though, one one thing I I, I will say, you've kind of made me think of it, and it it is a bit of a non-sequitur, though, is that, like, he kind of consistently gives some of his best performances in Rocky Creed movies, as far as acting is concerned. I know to a certain extent, to me, it feels like, okay, part of why that is because he's just kind of being himself. You know, he's not trying to do too much. He kind of, I think he kind of trusts himself in the character. But he he actually does some of his be- his best work in the Rocky series. Yeah. You know, he's one of the few actors to get multiple Oscar nominations for playing the same character. Really? Because he gets a Best Actor nomination for this, and he gets a Supporting Actor nomination for Creed. I, I'm not surprised that that those are the two movies, though. I'm not I'm not surprised that those those mm-hmm. are the two movies. He was very much considered the favorite to win in 2015 for Creed. He like won a lot of the precursor awards, but ultimately he lost to Mark Rylance for Bridge of Spies, which is a great performance. But in talk like interviews with voters and stuff, what it kind of seemed to come down to over and over again is like Stallone, not the friendliest guy. A lot of people don't like him. And you know who people do like is Mark Rylance. It's kind of hilarious how often it is just a popularity contest. Yeah, there's there's some of that going on there. In addition to its wins for picture director and editing, Rocky was also nominated for Best Actor for Sylvester Stallone. Best Actress for Talia Shire, which is interesting because that would absolutely be run as supporting actor today. Mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actor for both Burgess Meredith and Burt Young. Best Original Screenplay for Sylvester Stallone. Best Original Song and for Best Sound. So this was also a rare case of someone being nominated for actor and screenplay for the same movie. That's fascinating. Do you know who ended up winning Best Song? Best Song this year was Barbara Streisand for A Star Is Born. Oh, okay. Well, okay. A song that sucks. (laughs) It's not great, but it's going to win the Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. And Best Screenplay went to Patty Chayefsky for Network. Mm, I see that. That is a screenplay. (laughs) It really is. I, I actually, I, I mean, I, I think I think of that, you know, put your head out the window and said, I'm mad as heck. I'm not taking it anymore. I think of that moment often. I mean, that's the best actor win this year. Oh, there you go. A posthumous best actor win because he died between the movie's release and the Oscars. And yet another thing on this podcast I did not know. Peter Finch. We learn a lot. <laughs> yeah. We, we try. Learning and living and loving. <laughs> that's what we're all about here. On the um, on the music note, it's it it is amazing how iconic the Rocky songs are. At least like this one, you know, the Gotta Fly one. Da, 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 da. But I want to say Eye of the Tiger doesn't show up till Rocky three, right? But it's a it's a Rocky original though, right? I believe so. You know, I think so. So yet another another uh, great addition to our culture from the Rocky series. So so thank you. Mr. Stallone and producers of the Rocky franchises for bringing us bringing us so much. Yes, Eye of the Tiger is the theme song for Rocky Three, which was released one day before the single. It is funny how much, like, I mentioned how they rewrote the ending because they loved Bill Conti's score for this movie so much that they wanted to end on the peak of it. It is also funny, I watched this movie with my wife and she was commenting on, you know, for us, we know, like, the Rocky score is iconic. Neither of us had seen it, but we know the piece really, the theme really well. And so the scenes where you're getting, like, the, like, nice slow arrangement of the Rocky score. And we're like, this is a little funny to be hearing. But at one point I was like, 
have we heard like the proper like horns and all version of the Rocky score yet? And my wife was like, yeah, it's the first thing in the movie. The first thing that happens in the movie is just the score blares as Rocky in huge letters scrawls across the screen. A light touch. I love how it's like, you know, if you had to justify it, you could be like, oh, it's kind of like the marquee outside an arena. You know, if you have, if they have one of those digital marquees, it's kind of like that. But really, you're just like, no, great song. Here's your title card. Let's roll. You know, Melissa, I was watching it with her and she she even asked me, she was like, do you think that they knew they did something with the music when they were making this? Like, do you think that they like could tell that this was really good music? And, and I thought about it. I was like, I don't know. They, they probably couldn't have. But then I realized they used it as a motif throughout the the movie and so they just must constantly. have known just constantly they must have known yeah we're working with, with with fire here it's like power of love and back to the future subject to a future two-hour episode where it's just like if we're not playing it right now it's because we just finished playing it <laughs> i mean it makes sense i think like it's not like the person who wrote the music is like i wrote a banger and putting it everywhere it's someone else listens to it, hears it, and is like, this is great, and then decides where to play it. Yeah, it's John Avildsen who wins an Oscar for directing this movie, and the editing team, who also win an Oscar for this movie. Guess they knew what they were doing. This movie is edited by Richard Halsey and Scott Conrad, mm-hmm. and it's generally considered like they win the editing mostly for the training montage, which they went to Philadelphia to shoot without a plan. They were just like, eh, we'll find some cool locations and shoot some stuff. Garrett Brown, bring your steady cam along. And then... For the fight, which they shot in reverse, they started with the 15th round with, like, all the makeup and all the goop on them, and they would shoot each round in backwards order so that they could just peel off layers of makeup. Hmm. That is such a brilliant approach. I would have thought it would be easier to just add more makeup. That's what I assumed. But I guess if you're just peeling it off, you don't have to run the crew out in between each thing. Yeah, that that makes sense, especially if you're already working on such a low budget. Anything to kind of, like reduce that time mm. that's interesting because w- one thing that interests me about that fight too at least in, you know i'm we're so at least for me in the box movies I, I see i'm so used to there being like slow moments where it's like he's going down it's so obvious what the story of the fight is whereas this they present it and shoot it like it's just a fight like they don't slow time down at all you know granted some of it is is, is the technology and like their budget means you can't really get a bunch of these mm. shots but it, it's interesting that they really present it like you're watching the fight in a lot of ways. Yeah, you don't get a ton of like over the shoulder shots of the camera getting punched. So you feel like you're getting punched with Rocky. It's mostly just, you know, turning on the boxing. Exactly. It, it, it's really interesting. It's just, it's an interesting approach to me just because now it's so done the opposite way. I mean, part of what mm. I love about Creed is how they really tell that story. And, and you know, some of the shots that, um, oh, my God. I can't, why is he, why am I blanking on his name? The director, um, Ryan Coogler, Coogler, uh, uh, did with the, the shots and kind of moving through and moving like the camera is almost a boxer as well in the ring. Like it's such brilliant work, but it starts, it stands in such stark contrast to the like almost natural TV quality of this one. The Creed fights are really brutal (laughs) and really visceral. You know, Creed 2 is nowhere near the like masterpiece level that Creed is. But the fight in that is really well done. It's intense. I'm excited. We're putting this episode out the week that Creed 3 opens. I had no idea. I I assumed you did not, Mark. Um, But I went to see The Way of Water for a second time last weekend. And I saw a IMAX-specific trailer for Creed 3. That's just Michael B. Jordan, who directed the movie in addition to starring it. So carrying on Sly's legacy. Talking about just like, 
how intense it's going to be to watch these fights in IMAX. And I'm like, Mike, you sold me. I'll be here. All right. Should we start getting into the romance? Yeah, we should, because it's like it's like a real romance. It is. I was surprised and not surprised at how romantic this movie was. And it is actually a very good fit for our podcast. It's kind of a perfect fit for us. It is. Every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to guide the conversation. As our guest, Caleb, will you take us to point one? Absolutely. So first, let me just say, I I never feel good about my five points whenever I come on. I, I just I, I just want to speak that aloud, just so you know. <laughs> At least you didn't have to do points for the return to Oz, like <laughs> Sam Batchy did. That sounds like that would be really tough. That's a weird episode. I, I might need to go back and listen to that one just to just to see how it hasn't I'll come out it. yet as we record. Oh, okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at our feed in mid January. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. But as far as my points for this movie, I started off with my first point being he bought turtles and, and the fish just to see her. You know, the last turtle food I got here had more moss in it than flies. You know what I mean? These moths, they get caught in the turtle's throat right about here in his paws, right? I gotta smack them on the back of the shell. What do you think they get? Huh? And they get what? Huh? Come on. Show shot. Your show shot. What do you think? Just starting with the bad jokes, really, huh? Well, no, I've been inventing jokes since we used to. We're almost in media ray. We come to find out later, but I think it's worth mentioning that, like, she's the sister of Polly, who I assume is his kind of his best friend. At least he's the friend we see the most. Yeah. And and you know he has. He has these turtles and this fish in his apartment. He buys turtle food. Just excuses come and see Adrian at the uh, at the pet store. Every time Rocky walks into the pet store, it is hilarious. Because he is so determined to engage Adrian in conversation. And she is so painfully shy that she just stands there while he talks at her. And what's funny is, like, Rocky doesn't really ever pause waiting for her to respond. In part, you guess, like, he's clearly done this a million times, so he knows she won't. So he just walks in, talks at her for five minutes, and then leaves. And he has an unbroken string of just monologue the entire time he's in there. Tells a prepared joke, but doesn't give her a chance to laugh because he knows she won't. It's so funny. It's clearly just, like, the ritual of it. You would believe that he does the same monologue every time he walks in. It really establishes exactly, like, that... I guess I'll say the word comfort, but you know that the like you said that that how consistent it is that he's been he's been doing this for a minute. I couldn't help though, but but sometimes feel like it reminded me of like I think when he was talking to the birds once. Uh, it couldn't help but think of the room with Tommy Wiseau going into me like, "Hey, doggy!" Like it just there were just some elements of that that just really like I I couldn't help but feel um, just some Tommy. He Wiseau. talks to himself as much as Johnny in the room. It is better scripted talking to yourself. That's the thing. Sly is a much better writer than Tommy Wiseau. I think that's Let's the set thing. the bar really high for him. I really think that's the thing is I think, you know, that the big difference being that this is a, you know, it's a comprehensible plot and, and a much better script. But all this to say is, is yeah, I mean, it's funny because it, he obviously comes around enough that I assume the owner or the manager, whoever else is there, I, I, you know, she gets just a few lines where it's like, it's Rocky again. Like, she's like fed up with it at this point. You know, at this point, you're not even sure how Adrian feels about mm-hmm. this. Because she always seems so 
reserved and so taken aback. And it's, you know, such a difference from Talia Shire's role in the Godfather movies. Yes. I didn't even notice they were, like, I didn't realize they were the same person for a while. And you're not even sure, like, is she painfully shy? Is she intimidated by this, like, guy who walks in with his face all beat up? Like, does she not like him? Does she want him to go away? And ultimately what it is is she is just, like, paralyzed, has a paralyzing shyness. Right. I think that's, in a way, what can be kind of tough about watching this movie now is I think the story they're trying to tell is that she's so shy, but she is interested in him. She's just so shy and so, like, quiet that she would never say or do anything. But those feelings are there. But watching it now, it almost really feels like, and, and this is almost kind of one of my later points, and we'll get around to so I can, I can just mention it now, kind of like little teaser, is that, like, it does kind of feel like now we read it as, like, he's kind of being a creep. Like, what, won't he, he take a hint, you know? The most important thing in the movie for it to still work today is, you know, and I think we're going to get this to, to this in the next point. When Rocky goes to pick her up for that first date, and she's really upset with Polly, and she, like, doesn't want to go out. But when it is Rocky directly appealing to her, she says she wants to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important thing, that, like, when her brother is taken out of it and his, you know, aggression and, and Polly's rudeness and all this, no, when it is just her and Rocky and nobody else around, she clearly does want to be with him. Yeah. I do think when it is the two of them, it is noticeable her attitude shift towards him. Which I think is kind of sweet. And it suggests that all this stuff that's going on here in point one, you know, all these trips to the pet store, that she is recognizing him as someone who like genuinely does care about her and is interested in her. And in a way, rather than being pushy, his engagement with her is showing that he understands her and cares and like is trying to approach her in her own way where he's not going to make her hold a conversation when she's not comfortable. Like he is finding ways to spend mm-hmm. time with her and also not demanding something of her that she's not willing to give. Now, when it's going on in the movie, you're a little bit like, is he being too pushy? But I think ultimately that is what's happening and that's what we're able to see. Yeah. It is nice that he's not like, come on, give me your number. Come on, let's go out. He's just like, here's a joke I wrote. It's good to see you. Bye. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you next time my tur- turtles need their fly food. In the way we've been talking about Rocky's small ambitions, it's a small way of caring about somebody. Right. And I think and what's so sweet is that you you see him earlier in the movie. He's like gotten up and he's talks about like he starts talks about his turtle food having like too many moths or flies and and you're like why is he talking about this? Hey, they don't make it clear. And then next thing you know, he's in in the shop and he's like just Puts it out there that, yeah, this time the, the turtle food had too many moths, you know, not, not enough flies, and, and it get, gets caught, and then I have to, and it's all the build up for the joke. Yeah, he was rehearsing what he was going to say to her. It's so funny. It's, and it's very sweet, you know, and, and it ends up, it's, it's funny, it's sweet, and I think it, it kind of reveals a bit, like I'll said, about like kind of his, his sort of simplicity and kind of meager ambition, but like not in a bad way, just in like a, in in one of those like he's just looking to you know get one more step farther should we go to point number two yeah take one step farther (laughs) yeah nice yeah so the next uh the next step is essentially um they're forced to go on a date and what kind of precedes that is you know we're introduced to uh uh adrian's brother paulie who we imagine is one of rocky's best friends i'm gonna say it paulie sucks oh yeah paulie sucks one of the worst characters insofar as, like, being a good person I've seen in a movie. Like, truly, like, he is few mean. redeeming qualities of any. He's abusive to his sister. He is mean to Rocky. He 
doesn't allow his friend to have his moment of glory at all without demanding that he get monetary benefit from it. Yeah, I'm I'm coming out. I'm coming out anti poly I I'll, I'll take that stance with you. Anti anti poly I think he's no good. I haven't seen Rocky Four, so I have no opinions on Polly's robot. <laughs> but I'm anti poly I like. Is Polly's robot a Megan doll? I would be a fan. What is Polly? What does Polly bring to the table besides a room full of meat to punch? I think like on some level he's supposed to be like the business guy, right? So like he's gonna make deals. He gets Rocky the robe, for example. He's got like a hustler's business acumen, which Rocky really does not. Rocky just kind of takes whatever wanders in front of him. Yeah, I just don't think they did a good enough job justifying all the meanness. No, I think it's a mean world that Rocky lives in. Except for Gaz. Gazzo, the the loan shark he works for, constantly just giving Rocky money. Just giving him money and doesn't seem to ever respect anything in return. You know, I like that it's this guy who's just kind of like, Oh, Rocky's, like, kind of having a moment. Like, he almost pities Rocky, right? Right. Mm-hmm. There's an element of that going on. But also there's a, a moment of, like, you know, good for you, Rocky. Like, I never really thought you were going to have a moment. But, like, enjoy this while it exists. You're going to get the crap beat out of you by Apollo Creed. And then you'll be back working for me again. Right? He doesn't think this is a turning point in Rocky's life. He he cares for his community. He cares for his people, you know? It's, 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 he's, a, he's a community guy. Do you think that Rocky would be friends with Polly without Adrian? Yeah, I think so. I think Rocky and Polly like grew up in the same neighborhood and have been friends forever. And like they're just gonna like kind of keep on keeping on through inertia. I also think that Rocky, like again, we just keep coming back to the thing of like Rocky's vision is pretty limited. True. He doesn't You know, Rocky think is that not much. a guy who initiates big changes in his life to bring us back to the romance. Like Rocky does not ask Adrian out. No. Polly Rocky like, is not seeking out, to new, go pro- out new opportunities in his boxing career. Like Rocky is just existing passively in the status quo. And I think that's what's so interesting is it, it, so much of, like you said, life moves around. It's almost like Forrest Gump. You know, he's chosen by it by Apollo Creed. It's Polly who who gets him in these dates. It's Mickey who gets him to train. You know what I mean? It, it's all these other people affecting him rather than the other way around. In a lot of ways, he's kind of impotent in the world he's in. And so much in a way of that last fight then becomes about him kind of proving, no, I, 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 I'm a ro- I can stand here. I can take things. I can, I can exert some sort of power. I can make him go 15 rounds. He's choosing to want something. Yeah. Which is almost scarier. I think, that in a way, part of what this movie is suggesting is it's scarier and more vulnerable to want something, you know, because it sets yourself up for failure than it is to just kind of accept what you what you have. Guys, Rocky's a Rocky's a good movie, right? But on, on, as far as like the the dating goes, yeah, exactly. You know, it's Polly set up by Polly in maybe the meanest way possible. You know, it's Thanksgiving. He didn't tell his sister he was bringing Rocky over that she was going on a date. She already has turkey in the oven. He throws the turkey out, and she goes into the room. He's like berating her. Right. Polly, you know, Mark, you said he is abusive. Right. I mean, it truly just absolute abuse. I mean, you know, throughout the and film. meanwhile, Polly's talking to Polly's talking to Rocky about like. Yeah, you know, she's got to start seeing somebody. He says, if she doesn't start living, her body's going to dry up. It's so mean. <laughs> she's 30 and she's unmarried. What a what a shame. I think we should acknowledge that the characters in this movie are our age. That did kind of throw me when he said, I'm 30, she's 30. I'm like, what? Like, uh, Some of us aren't 30 yet. Well, I don't think any of us are 30 yet, but... We're I didn't think so, but... We're told Adrian is pushing 30, and I think it's fair to say we're all oh, pushing 30. Yeah. But 
you know, Rocky and his sort of bashful sort of kind of like, this is pointless. Why am I doing this? Like he, he gets her to come out. Like she, you know, next time she opens the door, she's dressed. He goes, and as we mentioned, he he pays the ice rink guy to, to go ice skating because Polly said she enjoys ice skating. And and she really begins to open up on the date. I mean, despite the miserable situation that, that put her there, that it, like, like you all said, it's like there's a noticeable change in her demeanor. She actually opens up, starts asking questions, starts answering questions, really, really talking with Rocky. I originally done it. I carry pictures of all my fights. I originally done it in the baby Crenshaw fight. You see that? Big baby's about the size of an airplane. I broke both my hands on his face. I lost that fight, but that's a nice picture, don't you think? See how it works there? Real nice. Uh, come on, you having a good time? I'll tell you, you can see I ain't too graceful, you know what I mean? I don't move well. But I'll tell you, I can really swat, you know what I mean? I can really hit hard. But I'm a southpaw, and nobody wants to fight no southpaw, you know what I mean? Huh? The great part of this date is when they go to the ice skating rink, where Rocky takes Adrian... And it's clear the skating rink is closing. It's six o'clock in the evening on Thanksgiving. And Rocky ultimately bribes the Zamboni driver to let them skate for 10 minutes. And it's a really sweet scene of Adrian very nervously skating while Rocky jogs on the ice next to her because he doesn't want to skate because it's risky for the ankles and he needs solid ankles for boxing. But you know, it's a sweet scene of, this is the first time we really see Adrian engaging with him. She's asking him questions. She's responding to what he has to say. But Rocky is still a monologuer. He is talking about his life. He's talking about his philosophy. He's talking about his training. And it's also a scene with a lot of comedy where Rocky's doing his little jogging along. And there are scenes where Adrian starts trying to basically jog in her ice skates to keep pace with him. It's great. Oh, and then there's that disgusting part where he, like, has a dislocated pinky. <laughs> oh, Yeah. That threw me. But it is. It's a sweet scene. And it continues. I mean, after, for the most part, on their walk home. It, it is It is interesting to me once we get to his apartment. You know, the kind of like, nah, come on up. And she, I mean, she says, no, I don't I don't want to do it. But we, we, we kind of tread some of that ground. But, I mean, at the end of the day, she's passionate about him too. I think is, is the big takeaway of the scene is supposed to be that, like, I think that him sort of kind of poking at her, thaw, you know, getting her to thaw kind of lets her express how she really feels. Okay, it is also truly hilarious once he gets her into his apartment, which is just a horrifying scene that, as I read, literally smelled bad. Oh, that apartment is terrifying. But it's really funny when he's, like, trying to entice her over to his garbage-covered couch. She's standing in the kitchen by the door, and he's like, there's big bugs over there. It's safer over here. It's just a hilarious way to try to entice somebody for a couch makeout. Which is like, yeah, my apartment's full of bugs. If you stay over there, you're going to get bitten by something. Come sit on this couch that is covered in, like, newspapers and trash. It's literal garbage on the couch. And he winds up going over here to the kitchen, and eventually they start kissing, and they sink to the floor. And they're still in the kitchen. So what I have to ask is, did they have an orgy with the bugs? <sighs> I hope not. <laughs> and this, Mark, I told you the centipedes would come back. Oh, God. That was something that I wondered is, okay, what's the implication of this scene? Did they did they uh, uh, continue on to, to make love in that disgusting apartment? Because I just really yes. hope... That the answer was no, just because it's such a disgusting apartment. That I really hope it was just like a nice makeout session and then just get her on her way because I, I, that just sounds like a terrible experience. I am confident that Adrian had sex for the first time on Rocky's kitchen floor. Oh. Ugh. You know what? 
there there are future Rocky movies. I think it worked out for her. Well, it's also then makes it funny later on in the movie when Adrian's like all over him and Rocky's insisting no fooling around during training. And she's clearly frustrated. And she's like, yeah, basically like you just introduced me to sex. I had sex with you surrounded by bugs on your kitchen floor. And now you're immediately cutting me off. Honestly, that's a great sort of segue. And might as well just move ahead into like my point number three, just that they, they kind of start, they just start going steady. Yo, you look great. Really? Oh, yeah. Terrific. I mean, you could be a heartbreak. You walk down the street breaking hearts the way you're looking. Very sharp. I got, I got another surprise for you. What? Hey, bud kids! Hey, bud kids! Come here, kid! Come here! To keep you company when you run! Oh, 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 Come on in and meet the family! They start yeah. hanging now. She's like visually affectionate toward him like that like he gets back from a run uh i can't remember if he's mad because the run didn't go well if he had a fight with polly i think he had a fight with polly so he's sitting there and she's trying to like kind of give him a rub you know to like oh you just ran but it's obviously she's like hitting on him that is a rub as prelude to sex oh 100 percent mm-hmm and he is just not having it, not having it at all. But I mean, it, it's clear that there's a shift in their relationship at this point, that there's a comfortableness there. There's, she's so much you know, closer to him. They're spending a lot of time together. She's supporting him as he's training for the fight with Apollo Creed. There's a really sweet moment where he gets interviewed and you know, there's some good bits in it where he talks about, they're asking him like, oh, you're named the Italian Stallion. Where'd that come from? And he's like, oh, I thought it one time when I was eating dinner. But he ends with like, I just want to say hi to my girl, like, yo, Adrian. And she is so excited to have been called out. And it's like, you're sitting next to the guy. Like, it's not like a celebrity called you up. But like, again, it's the way they show care for each other is very sweet. And and I think what's interesting is I think it's it's right after that interview. I mean, the entire time Polly is saying, aren't you mad at the way they're taking cheap shots at you? Aren't you mad about this or that? You should punch him. And, and Rock is like, no, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. And then he's on the way leaving because Polly's mad about something. I can't remember what at this 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 time. But he's he, he's leaving because it's like uh, Polly kind of put him in a bad mood. And on the way out, he, he admits to to Adrian, actually, it did bother me. You know, I, it in that sliced alone way. Actually, it bothered me, and that's it. Just that one thing, and it really just you know, it's one of the first times we see the crack in the facade of Rocky. That is, you know, I'm just happy. I'm just this big galoot who just cruises through life and that's one of the first times we see oh there is some sort of dissatisfaction there and it's because of his relationship with adrian and kind of the vulnerability he has with her that she's maybe the only one he would admit that to yeah and so you know kind of moving right along into into point four because i think it kind of you know it's pretty soon after this that polly just goes on another one of his just terrible tirades. You know, he's yelling Polly, at... no good. No good. He, he, he's yelling at uh, Adrian. He's, like, mad at um, uh, Rocky. Because I think he overhears Rocky saying, you know, that's why he doesn't want to get um, get him involved with Gazzo. Because polly has been asking the entire movie. And Polly just is like, okay, are you having sex with my sister? You know, calling her a whore. He's just, like, going terrible. And so they move in together. Yeah. Pretty quickly, you know, after the... So my point number four is they move in together. This disgusting apartment... For some reason, she's like, hey, you need a roommate? Why is why is that the solution? Live somewhere else, guys. I know. Find a new Start place. Start fresh. Burn that building to the ground. She has a job. Also, that, that moment that when Polly's yelling at her has one of my favorite moments in the movie where she's like, you took care of me. 
I take care of you. I do the dishes. I do the laundry. I have a job. I do all these things. She, she, she said, what are you talking about? You take care of me. You have this relationship wrong. And I think it really flips on its head how we're like, at least for me, how I saw, see that relationship. That moment in the movie always puts on his head that, oh yeah, it's not that Polly's taking care of her. She's always been the one who's, who's taking care of him. Polly's no good. But no good. No good. Is Polly also 30? Oh, God. No, he can't be. God, I hope not. I hope not. That's some hard living. I mean, he drinks a lot, so maybe, but, and he spends a lot of time in the freezer, which Mike would do. I, that's, I hope he's not 30, please. At the time this movie shot, he was 35. Okay. Okay. I could see that. But that's a, that's an that's old a, 35. That's a tough 35. That is a tough 35. Wow. That's mind blind. Yeah, because here's the thing. He doesn't look that much younger than Burgess Meredith. <laughs> And Burgess Meredith in this movie is pushing 70. <laughs> You're not wrong. Oh, boy. Unfortunately. Oh, boy. Burgess Meredith, who, as always, just looks like a little leprechaun hanging on the side of a boxing ring. I didn't realize he was that that old. And, and I guess I guess I should. Wow, that's great. Mickey, I Burgess Meredith was born in 1907. Wow. Rock. Um, that's brilliant. I did not know that. So... As they're moving in, kind of does it just in a way it's another deeper relationship. What's interesting, I think, about their relationship is it it, it doesn't have what we kind of know now as kind of like that formula of hey they they kind of meet there it's they is, will they won't they they get together oh there's some issue they you know they fall apart oh but there's a big romantic gesture they're back together no this one is is pretty steady up you know so for there's no dumb misunderstanding right. The whole point of number four really is just that they, they're actually closer and more tighter. And, and like, you know, it, it's it's because she's living with him. He he gets up in the middle of the night. You know, they're in bed together. He gets up in the middle of the night. He goes check out the arena, kind of seeing the big moments. And he comes back and he, he wakes her up. And he since she says, hey, I'm I'm scared. I don't, I don't want to fight, essentially. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to win. And he just, I think this is the most honest we see him in the movie other than that scene mentioned earlier between him and Mickey, where he's like, this apartment stinks. You want something from me? You know, like this is maybe the most raw and intimate he is with, with any person is with Adrian in this moment where he's saying, he's really admitting all of this stuff about what it means to him to have this fight, to be able to do these things. Come on, Adrian, it's true. Oh, it's nobody. That don't matter either, you know? Because I was thinking, it really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go to distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing. for the first time in my life, you see? That weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. It, it just, I think, goes to show how quickly they they fall in with, in with each other, but I think a lot of that is deserved because they make it clear early on that this relationship, they've known each other for so long already. Yeah, and, and that really just brings us to the end of the movie, right? Which is the big fight. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, number five is, uh, I wrote it as, uh, he uh, he loses the match, but the championship is the love you, you found along the way. 
Um, yeah, and of course, the whole build-up to the fight, she's giving him encouragement. She's in the locker room with him being like, Rocky, like, it's going to be great. You're going to be good. Like, get excited. Right. And that's the thing. She's nothing but supportive of him the entire time. Even in that aforementioned scene where he's talking about his feelings, she's like, hey, you've got this. I, I believe in you. You know, just do what you think is right. And, and she continues to be supportive, be, to be supportive in the locker room. And as we mentioned before, the big climax of the movie sure might be the fight but when what's supposed to be the moment where did he win did he not it's going down to a decision you don't hear any of that you just hear you know you just hear uh, uh, apollo creed you have to like strain for right. it, right yeah you hear apollo creed say there ain't gonna be no rematch and then you kind of hear some stuff and then you maybe hear like a split decision and then you hear apollo creed meanwhile it's just adrian coming through the crowd you know yelling rocky he's in there being mobbed by reporters all kinds of people. he doesn't want to talk to them it's not about the fame it's not about his moment it's about seeing the he's person just screaming adrian yeah he's just screaming adrian because he it's all about seeing the person who's most important in this world right now the person he wants to share this moment with honestly it's very sweet and you talk about how like they reshot that ending to match the music and it's left on this moment of just them together and it i think to me that really reveals what they see this movie is about in a lot of ways yes and then it ends immediately Mm -hmm. like it's so easy to think no follow-up the modern version of this movie and i don't mean like a creed like i mean if you made like this screenplay today would go on for at least 10 more minutes of like showing rocky and Mm -hmm. adrian after and stuff and maybe there'd be like a post-match conversation with paulie and with mickey and all that and it's like this movie knows when to end the emotion has reached a climax the music reaches a climax and you're out but we're out do you find the romance believable yes yes Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like this whole episode has been us talking about, like, Rocky, surprisingly excellent romance. Yeah. I mean, he's a little pushy at the beginning, but he's not that creepy, like, a bit. Especially when you consider that he's probably known Adrian for, like, their entire lives. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of it might come from Polly being an abusive brother. Mm. who, Like, he and Adrian live together, and he spends most of his time talking about how shitty Adrian is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about that sort of like matchup too of kind of like this quiet but passionate person in her and sort of the like talkative but isn't always so passionate. They're, it makes sense to me like together I see how they kind of fill each other's gaps. But I'm uh, sorry, Will, you're about to, to ask. Yeah, so uh, Caleb, you know, we've got our scale of zero to ten. Zero means you believe none of the romance. Ten is all of it. Where are you going to put Rocky? You know, it's funny. Coming into it, I was going to say like a six or seven just because of the kind of pushiness in in it. But I think through our discussion, I think I've kind of come around and I'm gonna I'm higher than that. I, I'm gonna give it like a a nine. I actually think I'm 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 this going is, full nine. This is a naughty number nine for me. I agree. I'm taking a point off because I don't believe she'd move into that apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. Do you think Rocky or Adrian is dateable? I'm going to say yes. Definitely Adrian. Rocky might get on my nerves. He talks a lot. That, that's it. It's just that he talks a lot. But I, I, Adrian definitely. I think Rocky, he's sweet enough that the answer is yes. But I, he, he, he talks a bit much. Yeah. See, weirdly, I think I'm the flip of you in that, like, I think I would have a hard time connecting with Adrian if she's, like, not going to talk much. But I don't want to date a boxer, right? I'm yeah, not I'm gonna, not dating I'm not going to live that life. See, I get it. I don't know. I think I find the boxer thing, I, maybe at least for me, I, I think to me that that's a point for him because I'm like, okay, he's he's dedicated, he's disciplined. And he could die at any time. 
and then I wouldn't have to think about him again. You know, if I'm a freeze bird. <laughs> Caleb's, Caleb's excited about the quick out. Right. Mark, if I can invoke my own sketch comedy character, I think about dating him. I just think about Heidi Gardner's girlfriend from every boxing movie on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Caleb, if you did have to pick someone to date from this movie, who would you choose? It's tough. I, I don't like picking usually the stars because there's a... They're obvious picks. They're good picks. So who I was thinking of is, um, oh God, his name is Tony Duke. He, he's the manager for um, for uh, uh, Apollo mm. for Apollo Creed. I can't remember his name. Good right choice. Now, but it's because he's he's the one who takes this all very seriously. The character's name is Tony Evers. He's played by Tony Burton, who was himself a boxer. Oh really? Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I think I picked him. Because he's clearly thinking what's best for Apollo in the moment. He's not a yes man. He's the guy who's constantly trying to give him the good advice. So he's clearly, he pays attention. He's smart. He's willing to say what's, you know, what he thinks is right. And he pays attention to, to Rocky, to his training. And he says, hey, you might want to see this. He's, he's taking this seriously. And, you know, he's, he's the only person in Apollo's camp who sees it coming. And so to me, he seems like he's somebody who's attentive, who's caring, who I think would just, just be a really great partner, who's trusting, and I could trust to give me a good opinion. So now you're making me feel bad because that was really well thought out and a really compelling argument. And I was going to say Tony Gasso, the mob guy. I almost said him too. I was just going to say the other woman who worked at the pet store because she was funny when she was mean to Rocky. (laughs) She was. Right. Whereas I'm here with a guy and I'm like, look, he seems like a pretty nice, reasonable guy. (laughs) I read on Wikipedia that this movie was criticized for glorifying loan sharks and mob people. That is funny and dumb. I, I almost picked Gasso as well, to be honest, though, because 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 he, he he seems like a nice guy, you know. Hey, as long as you as long as you pay your debts, yeah, you know. All right. Regardless of the like ten other movies, do you think Rocky and Adrian stay together? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, makes complete sense. They're meant to be because because if if the boxing thing isn't an issue now, it's not going to be in the future. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. This is an interesting question. Should there be? A Rocky musical. You know, it's funny. I feel like every time I come on here, I usually say yes. This is one of the few times where I'm going to say no. I think this movie is small enough, I think, intimate enough, and, and kind of like, I, I just don't think it, it would work. I think it would start to feel schlocky and overdone because it's already almost like kind of like, I think it would, I think it, it, it shouldn't be a musical. One of the few times I'll say that. Caleb, I have news for you. I assumed. <laughs> Which is that the Rocky musical premiered in Germany in 2012 and on Broadway in 2014. I assumed. I think I knew this existed, no. actually. It was pretty widely acclaimed. Uh, it had music by Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, who did the music for Ragtime, which is a musical that I love. Uh, it was directed by Alex Timbers, and it was really notable for its set design, especially. The musical, by the way, was like generally well-received, like well-reviewed. It's apparently like quite well done, but the set design was the big thing because for the final boxing match, the set like extended out into the first five rows of the audience and the people sitting in those rows then would move into like bleachers around it. So like it's more out in front of all the audience and those people are now like the in-universe audience for the fight cool. for the final sequence of it. And like they won the Tony for scenic design. That's awesome. I love that. That's cool. Mark, I did want to throw out just as a, a note while we're talking about the Rocky musical that the original production starred Andy Carl as Rocky, who's like a big Broadway guy. But in addition to originating the role of Rocky on Broadway, Andy Carl was also in the original productions of Groundhog Day, the musical, Legally Blonde, the musical, Nine to Five, the musical, and Pretty Woman, the musical. Oh my God. 
He has a bag. This guy is our guy, clearly. He is in his bag. All right. I think that is it for Rocky. Thank I'm you, so Caleb. Glad we this. I'm glad you were able to join us for this movie. Thanks for having me. I had a blast, as always. Yeah, this was great. It's funny. This is bizarrely the same week we had you on for She's the Man, because next week is our Oscars extravaganza. Get ready for anywhere from five to ten movies in one episode. No, there will be ten. It's now just ten every year. Is it? Yeah. Oh, right. I forgot. I don't know. I can't keep track with the rules. I hate rules. We are recording the day before nominations voting opens. Does anybody want to, like, fire off any hot takes? Not a, not a like, Top Gun Maverick will be a Best Picture nominee. Like, that's Elvis like, should what? not be a Best Picture nominee. That what, is... Top Gun? No, oh, Elvis. Elvis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we've been pretty clear over the last year where we come down on Elvis. <laughs> yeah. Caleb, you want to fire off any, uh, any Oscar opinions? Um, I, I also think, uh, from what I understand, I've never seen Babylon, but I understand it's not super well-received. It's exactly the kind of movie I feel like the Oscars would love, but I feel like it probably shouldn't be there either. Babylon, I mean... I would not bet that they're going to get a Best Picture nomination, although they did just get a SAG nomination for Best Cast today, so we'll see. Babylon's a weird movie. <laughs> you might like it, Caleb. I might have to give it a shot then. I, I, I have to. I, I do like weird ones. Yeah, that is a, a, a strange movie. I think I'm just going to, you know, hope that the, the animated feature category is as weird as it possibly can be this year, because there's a lot of good weird animation, mm-hmm. and I think we should celebrate that, even as I'm sure... Pinocchio, a good and weird movie, marches its way to an Oscar. Yeah, I don't see a lot of competition there. But until next week, when we will be discussing this with knowledge, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other people find the show. Okay, Caleb, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Rocky? You know, inspired by our discussion, I think the best piece of dating advice is, you know, see who your partner is, see who you are, and like, let them be themselves and express themselves. So hey, if your partner's quiet and shy, don't, don't, you know, don't push her to talk too much. Just let her be her, accept her for who they are. I'm going to say even little moments can be really meaningful. 10 minutes on the ice can feel like a whole story for itself. My advice, practice your jokes in the mirror. (laughs) Mark's got a tight five for every first date. (laughs) Yep. Ugh. (laughs) I do not miss first dates. It's weird that this show is now, like this episode is three married dudes. (laughs) Oh God, we're old. (laughs) At least we look better than Polly at 35. (laughs) We sure do. All right, well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.